0: Hi, I'm going to tell you a funny story before I talk about who I want to speak about today. Uh, my good friend Ari Elbaum told me the other day that he went to the supermarket here, uh, Sennmau Market, the kosher supermarket, and he ran into our famous Baltimore kosher baker, Mr. Rosendorf, and he said something like, uh, I have something I want you to give to Rabbi Katz, and he went and he brought it and gave it to him, and it turned out that I mentioned a month or two months ago about a book that I uh, had, that I lend out to somebody about Gershon Kittaver And I said, truly, uh, truthfully, that, you know, I lend it I don't know who it is, I'll probably never see it again. And Mr. Rosenberg was nice enough to order it online and get me a copy, and that's what he gave to Ari to give to me. This all happened on Friday. So, I was joking about it, I said, wow, that's really impressive, which it is. And I said, you know, I have to do this more often. Maybe I can recover some of my books. Or, alternatively, maybe I can get some books that I can't afford. For example, I said, there's this new thing out that came out long ago called Protocols of Justice, the pincas of the Metz Rabbinate uh, Court, or something like that, 1771, 1789, in which a historian actually dug up the uh, and published. It's a major work of scholarship the based in records of the Shagasari when he was a rabbi in Metz in the 1770s and 1780s. It's like amazing, two volumes. But I looked, and I really wanted to get it, and I looked it up and I was like 300 bucks. I can't afford that. And so I said, I'm just going to tell next week that it's the Shagasari's yardside and see if we have any luck. Well, next day I come to show, and the guy announces, guess what, this week is the site of the Oh my goodness, I almost fell off my chair. I said, You've got to be kidding. And being superstitious, I take this as an omen. And therefore, I'm going to devote today's uh, talk, yardside talk, to uh, the famous figure of the Shagasari. Aside from that, I personally happen to have a connection, or a, let's say, I always felt uh, uh, fond of, or I always liked the Sefer shagasari, Uh for a long time for various reasons. And uh, now I'm in the rabbi business. It's a, it, the, the Sefer, which came out in 1750, became very famous, as I'll try to explain later, and uh, became used by rabbis of the old school, back in the old days, as your Shabbos Hagadadrash and your Shabbos Shilodrash, because the shagasari is organized... Thematically, and it's mostly have to do with Yamam Tovim, and it's perfect for Shabbat HaGadol because he's got all this stuff on Hamas and Matzah, you know, uh, all the Sugis and Sakim, and it's good for um, the other one, Shabbat Shuba, because he has stuff on Yuma, and you know, Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, and so it became a standby. And me, myself, and I, I do it also. Uh, what I do in my shul is, well, Shabbat HaGadol, Shabbat Shuba, I give regular speech in the morning for regular people, but then in the afternoon, you know, whoever wants to come. So we do three hours. Uh, sometimes four hours. <laughs> we're, we're, my show's full of crazy people. And um, we always built something around the Shagasari, you know, old, old-fashioned old type of speech. In the old country, you know, a Shabbat Shagadal speech and Shabbat it was not meant to be understood by anybody. It's supposed to go over their heads, except for a few them, and then everybody would say, oh, wow, the rabbi spoke so fantastically. I did not understand a single word. Now, in America, this wouldn't exactly fly, but in Europe, in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, that people consider a covenant of Torah. You know, it's, it's so sublime, I didn't understand a single word he said. Okay, so let's get down to, uh, actual. what am I speaking about? The Shagasai is the name of a famous Savior, written by a rabbi, a famous rabbi, in the 1700s, who lived in Eastern Europe and the end of his life in Western Europe. That's the long and the short of it. Uh, I'm going to do something interesting, I think unusual, maybe unprecedented today, and try to deal and give you, in these uh, short uh, you know, podcasts, a factual, the best I can, a factual description biography of this famous rabbi. The reason I say it is, he became so famous that an entire universe of legends, lies, fables, baloney stories have been woven around him, and they're so well known that everybody takes it as the gospel truth. I don't know many Rabbonim and many Gedolim who have so many Bubba Mises said about them as the shagasariyeh, including his name, his uh, birth date, uh, you know, his, his uh, fight. I mean, it's amazing. There's w- one untruth after another. So I could devote uh, a very interesting podcast called Baba is about the Shagasaya, and you would love it. But you don't know, need me for that. You can go online. I'm sure there are a million of those. The Art Scroll published a kitty book like that. The, uh, you know, there's the, a the, the lot of famous Meisalach, you know, the books that fell on him and killed him, and uh, all kind of uh, uh, bull stories. But uh, I'm going to try... To do something a little bit different, based as best as I can, as best as I know, on the uh, interesting recent scholarship that uh, has uh, been um, carried out in connection with this is a great person, shoving away a lot of mythology and trying to replace it with uh, facticity. So, um, here I go. Shagazai so is a guy named uh, Arya Ben Usher, probably Arya Laban Usher, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, they say his name is Ginsburg, that's not true. So, Arya who lived in the 1700s. If you want exactly 1710 to 1785. They give you different dates, but the dates are wrong. 1710, 1785. So, he lived to be 75 years old. Uh, Now, who is this? It's from Minsk, okay? Minsk is what you call Belarus. Today, it's a separate country, Belarus. That time, it used to be part of the Kingdom of Poland, which included Lithuania. So, Lithuania, in the greater sense, Lithuania, meant... The country of Lithuania today, plus Latvia, plus Belarus. That's what Litvak means. If you're from Belarus, or from Lithuania, or from Latvia, that makes you a Litvak, okay? Now, uh, C comes from that kind of background, and from Minsk. Minsk is like the capital of Belarus today. And I would say in those years, for quite a long time, Minsk was and the 2 Icker Litvish cities, with the centers of culture and learning and all that sort of thing, and large, popul- relatively large population was Vilna and Minsk. That's who they were. And so they had famous uh, rabbonim, schools, yeshivas, not one yeshiva, many, uh, over the course of centuries. And being that it's an old pre-modern Jewish community, plenty of fights, machloikas, and all that sort of thing that we associate with Judaism. Okay? Yeah, that's who we are. B'nai Korach Now, uh, this person, try to hold cup with the dates here a little bit. Uh, he was born in 1710. Obviously, from early baby on, he's a genius. You know, from young age, like a Mozart. And uh, they say by the time he died, he made it. See him number one thousand. See him number one thousand. I don't know if that's true. Like I guess there's a lot of exaggerated. But I'm going to tell you something. It might be. <laughs> you don't hear about anybody else. And uh, you know, even the the ones who don't, don't hold from this all said he used to finish shots every year. So you know that kind of thing. Now, uh, therefore, this is old school gaonim of a high order, in which you know they memorize and knew uh, total command everything. You know, Bavli, Rishonim, Sifra, Sifri, and et cetera, et cetera. Rishonim. Although I want to point out something: uh, books of Rishonim and certainly Achronim were not so common in those days, especially in Eastern Europe, Eastern Poland. And uh, I think I could be wrong about this. I don't think the Shagazari had a sheet of you know what I am saying? I don't think he had access to a lot of Rishonim; he had some. And so he will be the outstanding example, I would say, of a certain type of goddle who basically, uh, you know, learns everything out of a few books and does the rest on his own brain work. As opposed to those kind of big rabbis who had big libraries and therefore had great erudition and knew a lot of uh, ideas and as spars, as whatever, from a whole host of uh, different spharm. Uh, I get the impression, and so do most, the Shagasari, you know, he had a Gemara's and all that, and he of course he had a Rambam a Torah and a Shulchan Aruch, and a couple basic Rishonim, like the Rosh, you can see, and the riff and you know, the Ron, you know, that, that kind of thing. And that's it, you know? I mean, that's it. Uh, so you have a, a Rambam set, and you own a tour set, and you know a Shulchan Aruch set, and he didn't hold so much from the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, one thing you're going to see but the Shagasari, which is famous, again, it's exaggerated, but there is something to it, uh, he didn't, he... Was the type of person when he grew up, uh, what's the right word? Say, I had a big mouth, that's not the right word, but he didn't mind, you know, shooting down even the biggest Rishonim and Achronim, uh, saying they're wrong here, they know what they're talking about over here. Uh, the books we have today from here are censored, you don't have the original. Uh, some famous Lithuanian rabbi before they let it be published cut out a lot of the objection material, kind of thing you'd have on a blog today, you know what I mean? Uh, but uh, anyway, he grows up to be this a uh, big super Eloy. Uh, learning 24-7, and that's not much of an exaggeration. It's probably 22-7. Uh, and he's in Minsk. And so already at the age of 20, in his 20s, that would put us in the 1730s. Remember, he dies in 1785. So in the 1730s, he was taken to be a Russian Yeshiva in Minsk. Now, I don't know whether there's one Yeshiva in town. A town in Minsk probably had 5, 10 Yeshivas. But it seems to be the central Yeshiva over there. Uh, why not? He's young, he's brilliant, uh, he's got it, he mu- must have been very charismatic, go ahead. Now, the rabbi of the city, who was also Rosh Yeshiva, was the famous Hechil Halpern, who wrote the, the, the Seder of who was, by my calculations, 50 years older. So you can already see the situation. You have a Yeshiva with a famous old Rav, who's like, uh, what should I say, 1660, he's 80, okay, he's 80, um, or 70, rather, he's in his 70s. And now there's this new guy in his 20s. And uh, the new guy's a genius. And you know what happens naturally, the students form into different factions and it turned into a fight. Now, there are legends about the fight. And, uh, you know, I don't want to go into the legends. It's famous, you know, that uh, the, the Shagazari insulted the other one and, the, and therefore the town threw him out on a garbage truck. Garbage truck. On a Friday afternoon, and dumped him outside of town with no food. I mean, I, I'm not going to go into that because I don't. I, I honestly don't think that stories are accurate. Uh, they might be, but best that I can tell, as I say, going through the best research that I know of, I don't think they're accurate. They're cool. <laughs> they're nice stories, but they're uh, not true. So here is somebody who is learning up a storm, and the interesting part from the intellectual point of view, as far as I'm concerned, is that uh, he because he had such an unusual breath, because he was a natural Eloy and uh, photographic, and anyway, he's not even photographic, he's constantly chadling over to Ganshah all the time, and Alder him and the Shulchan Aruch and the Poskim, and all that sort of thing, and Kabbalah, by the way, he knew the Kabbalah very well. So, uh, because he's got all that under control in his mind, so uh, he begins somewhere along the line to change his style of giving shir. Uh, and the Shagasai represents a leading figure in the 18th century and when the learning started to change. Uh, Let me explain what I mean. The old-fashioned way, the style that was uh, considered cool in the Shi world was the pulpal of the late Middle Ages. I've talked about it on podcasts before. At least I think I have. Maybe getting you confused in some class I gave, but I think so. And um, that was extremely localized. So basically, two chavrus is supposed to learn a Gemara. Don't look at Rashi. Don't look at Tosas. Uh, after you figure out, to your best uh, satisfaction, what the Gemara means, now see what Rashi says, and if Rashi says the same thing, then you know you've got trouble, because Rashi not supposed to say anything you can figure out on your own, and therefore, according to this way of thinking, and therefore, there must be something you missed. Because if you were Muhammad the Rashi, it's a big problem. Today, we say the opposite. A guy learns the Gemara, he looks at Rashi, he says the same thing, wow, I was Muhammad the Rashi, it's great. But in the old days, who do you think you are, you idiot? You think you're Muhammad the Rashi? Rashi must be thinking of something else, to bavorn what you've said. And you end up with that way of thinking. And then then you transfer that line of reasoning to Tosus. You know, so you say, Tosus, Asakashi, and Rashi. What, Rashi, a dummy, didn't know Tosus' answer? And you go back and forth and forth and back. And you're supposed to say, on the Adaf. There is a lot of scholarship on on this particular subject. And uh, as we can tell, the result is you can give these really fancy, especially if you're a genius, you can give these really fancy uh, shiurim in the yeshiva and impress everybody, even though... A lot of it's conjectural, especially when you reach the point of um, implicit uh, readings. Not what's explicit, but what's implicit. And the way I understand it is that he excelled in this. But over the course of time, since he knows everything, so he he mo- moves beyond it. And uh, others gave the Pilpa along those lines. But somewhere along the lines, this person, Rayulet Ben Usher is... Um, Transcending to 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 a next level, shall we say, in which you become more like a rishon, in which you deal with uh, what it says over here in the Gemara Rashi and Tosas, but you compare it to other places and other rishonim, and even uh, you know people like in the tour and all that, uh, you know, in the in the and in the Bach, and uh, and basically you kind of restore the rishonic enterprise in which you compare the whole Talmud back and forth, including the me everything else. Uh, one part to the other, and you end up with a much more satisfactory kind of uh, shot in the Gemara and conclusion about what the Talmudic discussion is saying. That seems to be what happens. And, uh, by the way, you still use the tools of pilpel. In other words, you compare and contrast, it's dialectical, you're also interested in the implications, not only the explicit conclusions, but the implicit ones. Uh, So it takes the best of the old, but it leaves out the worst of the old and introduces a, a much broader Uh, spectrum. Now, he's not the only one that did it. This seems to be part of what thoughtful historians of rabbinical literature are now calling the uh, intellectual revolution of the 18th century. I remember Professor Toshma, before he died, wrote an article about the Shagasari and the uh, Peneshu in that context, because the Peneshu is also a little bit like that. Not exactly, but a little bit like that. Peneshu wrote in the sense of on the daf, you know, whereas the Shagasari, the safer Shagasari, is not organized that way. It's organized more in a thematic way, shall we say. But uh the the idea of, of crossing everything all across Shas and all costs were shown him and you know, this Ritva here and that Rajva there and that Ron in the third place, all those uh are, are part of the same enterprise. So this is who he was. Uh, now he's does that in his twenties and in his thirties, um and into his forties, around the age of forty or so, which would put him in seventeen fifty about. Uh, as best as I can tell, 1751, he leaves uh, Minsk, uh, not under dramatic circumstances, but it seems his father, Rav Usher, he's just an of Rav Usher, his father was the uh, chief rabbi of the province of Minsk, not the city of Minsk. The city and the province are two separate uh, jurisdictions. They're always fighting throughout Jewish history. The big city in the area and the, and the rest of the communities in the area, because the big cities full of these rich guys who want to subject the smaller communities and the district to their control so they can get a hold of the tax money. Uh, Jewish life has its underside, shall we say. And uh, the way it usually worked out was you have two kahilas, You know, Lemberg and the Medina of Lemberg. Minsk and the Medina of Minsk. Vilna and the Medina of Vilna. And two separate chief rabbis, two separate basins, and the the whole nine yards. So his father was the chief rabbi of the Medina, the glil of Minsk. And he got old. It's the father. And the son left the Rosh Hashima position to go help the father become sort of a system that's running the show, it probably had 50, 60 communities under his jurisdiction, I would suspect that he figured like this, Yik revu, you may when the father goes, I'll get his job. And he would have been totally happy, as far as I can tell, uh, in that kind of environment. They had plenty of learners over there, people for him to talk to, to learn with, to hawk, and it uh, would have been fine. So that would put you in the 1750s. Hold that thought. I think when it became clear that he's not going to get the job, someone else is going to get the job. So he left there and he went to, uh, he looked for a steller, as we would say today, a town. And he got a small village, small town called Valerian. Maybe you've heard of it. And he became the rabbi there in the 1750s, in the early 1760s. The reason I say that is, again, keep this in mind. In 1765, he becomes the rabbi of Metz. So everything is built around that date. So for 15 years, or 14 years, or 13 years, he drove the small town of Elysian. It's As best as we can tell, he took a couple of really hot students, and he had like a kibbutz, which in the old sense means you get a couple of really good guys, and they learn together. They don't necessarily have to be married, but they learn together intensively, and he's giving what we would call today high-level shiurim. What do I mean when I say high-level shiurim? is a kind of rejection of the old pulpit that I described before, the very localized one that had been popular for so many centuries. It's the beginning of what you call, it's the beginning of, as far as I can see, of this Lidfisher attitude that we're doing something new, fresh, and a new way of doing uh, learning over here. And uh, it's only for we few, we chosen few, you understand? And uh, he indeed did it. So the new way of learning that he came up with evolved is what you see in his book, because... While he was the rabbi in religion, so uh, he obviously wanted to uh, publish uh, a lot of his uh, shiurim and uh, conclusions. And uh, he must have thought that there would have something contribute, you know, there would be something different, and it certainly were. And when he was, at that time, in the 1750s, in Lithuania and in white Russia, believe it or not, there was no printing press for a whole bunch of reasons. And so if you want to get a book published, you had to take it to Germany, which is next door to Poland, and so he traveled to Frankfurt, the Oder, not Frankfurt, the main. There are two Frankfurts in Germany. I know you don't know this, but there's one in West Germany and one in East Germany. The one with Samson Raphael Hirsch in West Germany, I'm talking about the Frankfurt in East Germany, called Frankfurt on the Oder River. And uh, he published it in 1756, I believe, and uh, it, made, it made a huge splash, okay? This is Safer, which he called Chagasariye. So um, he's already been, Ben he called Chagasariye. Anybody who's all familiar with this Safer knows. It's written in an unusual way. Uh, it's, a form of, it's in the form of response that Shiloh's and Tupac, but not really. Uh, it's not like somebody asks him a question. Uh, that's not the literary form that it's presented in. But rather, uh, you present a theoretical question. You understand? A theoretical question, which then forms the basis for um, a, a broad shear. Uh, you, know, um, you know, do you put on film before us? That's the, the, the Shiloh, correct? Uh, you know, things like that. It's kiddish have to be on wine, you know, they're theoretical, they're not theoretical exactly, but they, but they are questions that, you know, um, deal with uh, concepts, let's put it that way. The literary style, the literary style was different than any other safer uh, before that I can think of. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the addition Sedition, and um, each one is not treated as a regular responsum, but it's the subject of an intellectual discussion. You know, the Gemara says this, you have this region's opinion here, you have Akasha from elsewhere, until he finally comes to his conclusion. So the question-and-answer format serves as the, the basis for his uh, you know, learned discussion, shall we say. And meanwhile, it takes you up and down all through the, the, the sugyas, you know. It's a, and, uh, you know, it's very straightforward. There's nothing around about you know he's got a raya from a, you know a b'ferishat Tosfos or something like that, or at least the implications of one. He has a raya or a kasha from a Rambam. He has a something from a Gemara. You know, I mean, it, it, this becomes his classic style, and even writes in the Hagdum. I remember he said, "I used to have give old fashioned pimple Shurim, called a Yisaruach or something like that. It was all baloney. It was all the learning I did before of that style was there for shtick. But uh, what I'm sharing with you now is what I've come up with, probably from Volozhin, from the Minskiers. Uh, my good stuff, you know what I'm saying, this, this is the good, this is the good stuff I worked out with my students over here, and so just imagine this, my friends, here you are in a stupid little town like Volusia, and I was there a couple of years ago, it's a little village and, uh, you know, became famous, of course, but in his time, it was a one of many, many little places, ain't nothing to do in those places, no strip mall, no movies, <laughs> no TV, no nothing, so uh, if, if you're built that way, you can learn, and I'm t- when I say learn, you know, the style brisker style, the guess you put out a kasha and you think, you think, you talk with the students, they think some more, you ask, you analyze, you reanalyze, you're malabane as the expression goes, and uh, therefore you come up with uh, better material, shall we say, your conclusions and your svaris uh, come out better. And that's what he put into this uh, safer, which indeed, as I say before, was not like other svarim of the 18th century, and uh, therefore made a big, uh, a big impact. Ah, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So he was a rabbi in Volodian, and uh, there's a famous Yerodea thing involved. It's too complicated to explain to you all. Um, and his fame must have resounded as a result of this. And consequently, um, he got an offer uh, from a big community actually paid a real salary. When he was a Volodian, at least the stories they say, you know, is that he had a very small salary, was poor and starving, and that, that sort of thing. You know, it used to be an old joke, a bitter joke in Europe. It's a good thing the rabbi fasts on Monday and Thursdays, otherwise, he starved to death. So, uh, so, I'm sorry, he was you know, maybe from that school. Now, I'm sure somebody like him probably forgot to eat. You know, he's the type that learns all day long, but he's got a wife, he had children, you know. Uh, now, I'll tell you something interesting. He was there in the sem. let's say, approximately 1751 to 1764, about those years. Who was growing up at that time? Chaim Belushiner and his brother. Chaim Belushiner was born in 1749. See, that's why I make a deal about the dates. It actually kind of matters, because there are a lot of false stories told about the Shagasai. You can simply tell the dates are off. So uh, Chaim Belushiner, who was the son of the richest guy in town, I believe, uh, grew up in this little town, of uh, little village of uh, Belushin, uh, and uh, 1749. So he was two, three years old when the Shagasari became the rabbi there. And he was about 13 years old or 14 years old, you know, when he left. So keep that in mind, because later in life, he said, oh, I learned about the Shagasari. Yeah, he did. But in those years, very young years, one of the reasons of Chaim one of the reasons, very famous, is because he was a Talmud, number one of the Shagasari, number two in the Vilna Gaon. You know, can't get better than that. And he himself was a genius. So, you know, he put all that together. But uh, those are the years that the Shagasari was there. There are stories about... them, but I'm, again, I'm not sure. I don't think that they're true. Okay, so uh, here's a guy who's a, who's a big Tomahawkham, and it's actually in a small village. Uh, Eastern Europe had a lot of those because of oversupply and demand. You know, there are more Goenim than, uh, than than Stellers. By that I mean, th- there were more geniuses than large communities where genius would find uh, wide room for, uh, you know, teaching and poskining and all that. Um, I'm, t- I'm telling you something interesting. There are a lot of famous uh, rabbis in Jewish history, big Talmud and Chachamim, and they never got a uh, position equal to their abilities. Uh, to use American terminology, it's not the same thing, American terminology. There's guys who could be rabbis of shows of 500 families, and only be shows of 10 families. You know, it's it's like that. So, uh, because of that, so there was actually a dearth of, you know, big Kehillahs, and as you might imagine, most of them were politics and wrapped up with the old boy network and that sort of thing. But still, I would say there were about a dozen or maybe 15 uh, large and important killers, maybe a little more, in the 18th century. That's not so many. You know, if you tell me Frankfurt and Prague and Krakow and Lemberg and Vilna, you know, not so many, you see. You know, a couple others, obviously Hamburg, you know, there were, uh, Amsterdam. But there, there aren't as many as you would imagine. So, uh, uh, that's why somebody like Chagasari, even, especially after he, he became famous through publishing his scholarship, uh, where, 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 where do you go? Now, he got very lucky. Uh, because one of the A-level communities uh, hired him sight unseen, <laughs> based on his uh, scholarship. And that was uh, Metz, which is in France now, and was in France then. Uh, which is a very interesting story because it's all the way to the other side of Europe. Most of you have no idea of geographies. You probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but you know, go look at a map. And you'll see that uh, Metz is in what we call Alsace-Lorraine. Metz is the capital of Lorraine, which is part of something called the Kingdom of France, wherein lies a tale because France is a country which expelled all the Jews back in the 1300s. Spain did it in 1492, but the French did it before very anti-Semitic country. And so for the 13, 14, 15, 16, 1700s, no Jew was allowed to live in France. But then the following happened. The French kings, as part of their wars of conquest, moved east and took over eventually what's called Alsace and then Lorraine in the time of Louis 14th and Louis 15th. And when they did that and annexed these territories to France, so they got a lot of territory, and they also got 50,000 Jews. Now, uh, what do you do with them? So you might say, well, the French could have said, since we have a law no Jews allowed, get the heck out of here. Leave the country. But that's not what they chose to do. Even though the kings of France were pretty anti-Semitic, but they were practical. And it turned out that the economy of these provinces relied on the Jews to some degree, and the French army and civil administration re- relied on the Jews 95%. The Jews came from day one to be the ones that could uh, efficiently supply the French military with horses, with food, with weapons even, and all kind of stuff like that. And turned out to be a very interesting situation because of this economic utility, even though the kings of France did not like the Jews, and the people of Alsace-Lorraine definitely hated the Jews, uh, big anti-Semites. Uh, but nevertheless, it happened that the kings of France permitted Jewish communities in Alsace-Lorraine, which became a big center of Yiddishkeit, believe it or not. So, I'm talking about an area which is in the extreme west of Germany, but now has been taken over by France, and has been part of France eh, from that time till today, with the exception of uh, a few years, uh, Bismarck's time and all that. Uh, but, generally speaking, these are Yiddish-speaking Yakis of a certain type. I'll say it again, Yakis of a certain type. Uh, and the Yiddish is a German Yiddish. Uh, That's before the Yakis started talking German, our ancestors. And they consider themselves part of the Ashkenazic world. So they had no problem in bringing in a Litvish, a Rav, who, who speaks a different Yiddish from the other side of Europe to be the Rav there because basically it's all the same. It's all the same Ashkenaz. That just tells you a lot. It's it's very interesting in this regard. And so, Rabbi Laban Usher became the rabbi in of the Kehillah, the Av Basin, and the of Metz to the end of his life for 20 years, from 1765 to 1785. In other words, from the time he was um, 55 to the time he was 75 when he died. Now Metz was a Kehillah of about 3,500 Jews in the time of the and that was big by Jewish standards, right? Today it's the size of a neighborhood. But, that, I mean, uh, Vilna was no bigger, uh, and so it was an important community. Because of the, French, the importance of French economy, the Kehillah of Metz was, uh, let's put it this way, the Kehillah was always in bad economic situation, I'm not going into that, but it had a bunch of rich Jews there. and and they had rich Jews who were like court Jews, you know, they had uh, um, contracts with the government, they supplied the army and that sort of thing, there was a family bear, surf bear, and uh, they bankrolled uh, yeshiva and learning and that sort of thing. In other words, they they had the old-fashioned values in which they respected learning, and as a result, uh, you could have, uh, all the way in France, a a big center of Torah and Yiddishkeit, and It was now presided over by uh, the most famous or one of the most famous rabbis in 18th century, Shagasari. That was that book I told you, "Beginning Protocols of Justice," is all about that. And uh, he was there for the uh, Rosh Hashiva, uh, charismatic Rosh Hashiva, in the 1760s, 70s, and 80s in Metz, and also the head of the basin, you know, know, official uh, chief rabbi of a community of basin, uh, which means he played two roles. And this is where he spent the rest of his life? Okay. Now, there are some famous stories, which I think actually are true and makes total sense that, you know, he became the Rav there in 1765 and then 1766 was the first Shavuos and he got to a fight with them because he said that they should do the Akdomas like most of us do today. Before, you call the guy up and then you read Akdomas and then he says, Baruchos Hashem Bovarach and all that. And that way there's no Hefzik between the time you read Agdomas and the brachas. But the Yekash way, the old way, uh, which goes back to Rashi's time, frankly, and the Pay- Akdomas was actually written, not far from Metz, was that you call the guy up for Elia, they say, nächste- kart- And then you, re- then you sing the Agdomas and then you do the laning, which he said, well, that's a uh, hepsic. Now, you see, here you have a wonderful clash between minhag and halacha. The Shagasari, by this time is life, if not all the time, was a total Gemara guy. Meaning, I learned the suya myself, I know everything from top to bottom, I did all the relevant Rishonim, and now I reach my conclusion, and if I hear some Minig along the way it makes no sense, the Minig is wrong. It's, it's the, uh, there are two different attitudes out there. This is fascinating. I could go on this for hours. There are two different attitudes out there, and always have been, always will be. One is, if a great rabbi said to do this, it must be that that's the way to go. It doesn't make any sense to me, but if you tell me Rabbi Feinse said it, if you tell me Rabbi Chaim did this, if you tell me you know Ritzel Ochaned is okay, even though it doesn't make any sense to me, but great people like that must know what they're doing. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, I don't care who said nothing. Let me do all the work. I'll go through all the Gemara, the Rishonim, the and all the all business. I'll work out Svar Yeshar the best I can, and then I'll call it like I see it. And if I become convinced that this minog which you, you tell me was put together by some great person is wrong. Call a spade a spade, you know it's wrong. Change it. And uh, Chajkasari is number two, you know, from from from, from that school. And uh, he goes down in history. His fame is that uh, he's an outstanding example of that, which is why he didn't hesitate. I remember he called the Rebbeinu Talmud you know really messed up, up over here and these other achronim messed over there. He did because you know that was his teva. You understand? And I want you to know, there's a famous Chassam Sofer. Now, if anybody was a respecter of Min it's the Hassam Sofer. And the Silver Sofer, when he was young, I think met the Shagasari. I believe when he passed through uh, Frankfurt in Western Germany, Metz is not that far from Frankfurt. Anyway, the, Shah, the, the Hassam Sofer said like this: If you are like the Shagasari, and you do the Shas between Yom Kippur and uh, how's it you know, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. And then from Hoshkodeshel till Yom Kippur, you do all the Kabbalah, you know, the Zohar, Kisir, Rizal, and all that stuff. Then you have the right to argue with Tosas because you are about Tosas. But until then, shut up. So Shalakazari can do it, but you can't do it, I can't do it. Which I get, you know. So uh, he became, as I say, the, the uh, big uh, halakhic authority in that part of the world. And he engaged in the famous controversies of the 1760s and 70s most famously the get of Cleves, which is now not a time to go into that. And that uh, was going he spend the rest of his life. We actually found, uh, and I remember a historian Schwartz published uh, the contract, you know, the community negotiated with him with the salary. I don't remember the salary anymore. But I do remember one of two things. One is that uh, they'll pay for 25 students. You know, this is the old Abbasin days in which a is expected to run a sheep. That's where you spend most of your time. Uh, what do you give speeches? They don't do that junk. So you don't visit you know, the hospital all that That's for the modern American Orthodox Protestant rabbi. The, uh, in the old days, we was supposed to learn and teach Talmudim, uh, who will be his, uh, you know, the next generation. And uh, the question is, how much will the community kick in? You know, how much will they cough up? And they'll pay for, tw- I remember, 25 students. You want to get more students? Because Hey, but you, you raise the money. We'll pay for 25 students. And I Remember also, they wrote in there something like he can't give smicha, unless the This is okay because it must have been a source of income issue or something like that. And there are other paragraphs, I don't remember them all. If you go online, you probably could find this if you care. If you read French, I'm sure I remember seeing it in French once online, uh, long ago. So, uh, so that was the story of Shagasari. That's when he published the Tori Evan, uh, you know, one of those three massaches, and you know, that was like sort of the late, like the end of his life. I would say this that he made a tremendous impression on his students and as you would imagine. And they're French, right? They're Ashkenazic Jews in Alsace Lorraine. And they're the next generation of Jews in France. The Yad David, if you're familiar with that safer, and uh, you know, people of that nature, who who had the misfortune of being rabbis and scholars in the uh, French Revolution period and Napoleon period, and the post Napoleon period when Yiddishkeit was under a tremendous cultural attack. Um the influence of the Chagasarie remained there. The old-timers could remember him, and that's why they stayed from for, for quite a long time. It was like the next generation after that, the Giddish started to crash in, in France, and even when it crashed in France, they never quite went reformed. They just went screwed-up Orthodox. Uh, even to this day, the Consistoire, the French uh, official, uh, you know, uh, which I say denomination, is officially Orthodox, even though I think some have organs and things of that nature uh believe it or not and in in general Yiddishkeit in France has moved back to the right since the As moved there you know in the fifties so uh although I haven't been in France, but I am hoping to go next year uh a lot of this has to do if you i'm talking about the Ashkenaz now, the influence of the memory of the shagasari it was there for a very long time uh, on a personal note i myself uh uh, how should I put it, when I had bar mitzvah, I'm from the old school, my mitzvah was a million years ago and the old TA, Rabbi Samson, who was the head of the school at that time, you know, he himself was 100 years old at the time he, you know, when you had a bar mitzvah, at least when I was growing up, you had a mitzvah, you had a, 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 a speech to give in Yiddish uh, a dvartor, a pshetl, and there was always some shagasariah, and, saryeh, and like two or three famous ones and mine was, I don't have it anymore you know, and I remember he misspelled my name on purpose because he always had a fight with my father how to spell cats. Like, he knows how to spell cats better than we do. But that's the Mishigas of the old school. Anyway, um, but again, it was a whole long thing in Yiddish. I had to memorize it. But those they had to memorize, I can't read, you know. And in front of all the Rabbi Rudim and this and the other, oh my goodness. They didn't know anything about self-esteem in those days. Forget it, baby. Uh, but you had to, endure, you know, run the gauntlet and finish your shuttle. My youngest son, I remembered that, and I wrote it up in English for him, so it was easier. That's a new, nowadays, we're more into, you know, pampering the children, so he, like, read it. Uh, you know, it's famous, I'm sure some of you must, uh, f- be familiar that from your own bar, backgrounds. You know, the, the Rambam on, uh, Tuma de and, uh, you know, the Tzitz, whether it's Maratza, when the Kohen's wearing it or not, uh, you know, all those sorts of things of, uh, But whatever the case is, uh, it became a classic, that that's what he used for bar Mitzvah, pshatul uh, long ago. Uh, why did Shagasari It's very interesting, you know. It's a, somehow, or other, this safer caught the imagination of the public. I think because he, I think because he was the real personification of the image that later is transferred to the Gon. You're learning twenty-four-seven, mamish, mamish, and uh, the Vilnagon stayed in one pl- place his whole life. You know, in Vilna. Shagasari moved from here to there, there, there. And uh he had a stronger and more ca- ca- um what's the right word? Uh cantankerous personality. He only going and stayed in the Kleis. Uh, he lived in Vilna all of his life, except for a short period, and he uh w- you know, had his own little basement, shall we say, with select students. Uh the Shagazai moved everywhere, he had bigger yeshivas, he was in, in towns, he engaged in politics much more, uh and yet at the same time he finished his shots a thousand times or something, like as they say plus the Nigla, plus the Nister, and uh, there are many legends about the Vilnogon meeting the Shagasari back and forth. I'm sure they met, but most of the legends don't work out if you know the years. Uh, there's similar things with the with the Baal I don't know how the Balshento could have meet the Shagasari. Look, anything's possible. But the Balshento lived in one end of Poland, the Shagasari lived in the other end. It's possible they met. Uh, there are cool stories, but I'm I'm trying to avoid like I say, the Bubba Mices today, even though they're very cool, the Bubba mice are super cool, but I don't want to do that. That wouldn't be uh, right. Uh, instead, you have the image of somebody who uh, comes across you know, mythically, shall we say. When I say myth, I don't mean it's not true. I mean the, you select parts of the image uh, to the neglect of the others. As a person, as I said before, who's learning all the time, who uh, believes that you have to work out all this far on your own, the Shagansai emerges as the classic model. The person who doesn't have sperm and therefore has to do it the hard way. You have to figure out the, the truth in here and not go in cheetah books and look, you know, in some other safer to see if they have the answer. Uh, but you got to work it out yourself. Um, you know, the constant uh, chazara forever and uh, therefore very independent attitude. I worked it all out myself and, uh, you know, shared with my Talmidim and, you can be sure any ID came. He ran it by others, and they attacked him, and he had to defend it. You know, he loved, that's the world of uh, <laughs> what the Germans used to call the rabbinic matad- matadors of yesteryear, year, in which you know you say as far the other guy tries to slug it up, you defend it back and forth, forth and back, and a good time is had by all. And uh, kulo Torah, that we, the way is not associated with anything other than learning. You know, and and that sort of business. Uh, you know, so he's not part of the politics of that uh, generation. And uh, what else? Like I say, totally prepared to take on any other svar that disagrees with them, even from arishan. That doesn't bother him at all. Uh, most rabbis aren't like this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's kind of different. Uh, as I said, I encountered this when I was in Bar I did but it didn't mean anything to me. You know, I knew the Shagas are you on Central, big deal. When I was older and went to Yeshiva, I, I found something really cool. Because the Shagazai itself I found hard to read when I was young. And then I found a cheetah book. When I was like 20, some guy in Israel, uh, Yoshalmi, I think his name was, he, believe it or not, he put out something called, uh, he didn't call it, this is the Shagaziah cheetah book, where he took all the Sefer and he broke it up into little pieces and it's like a spoon feed and he even had the uh, Dibri Chacham Shenosim and Nosum, Dibri something like that. You know, other achronim that try to uh, comment and argue with uh, shagasari. These fish are abundant. I never heard about some guy in the, who's a rabbi in, 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 in the, the unheard of little village here and you know in the 1920s whatever and uh, I thought it was really cool and I for years ago i mean i am talking many years ago you know I used to go through this that's how I got familiar with the shagasari through the cheetah book and it's only later that I got into the regular safer and only in the last fifteen years. So they put out nice editions, or 20 years, they put out nice editions with, uh, you know, decent print and uh, footnotes and all the rest of it. Recently, uh, Rabbi Sheftel Newberger told me there's some new guy that came out very recently with an edition of Shagasari. I saw it somewhere. I wasn't impressed. But on the other hand, by contrast, there was like a blue cover thing that I got about two, three years ago in Israel, I think, or wherever, uh, Shagasari, with the Shagasari of with extra, you know... Um, uh, Essays of his that were published a long ago and very good footnotes, uh, very, very fine uh, footnotes indeed. And uh, I just actually, <laughs> I'll share with you something very briefly. I'm a coin, so therefore, uh, I'm interested in coin questions. And me and Steve we were both Kohan, we were learning together coin stuff and uh, came across the famous issue in Nazir about the Sheetah's Arrived. Some of you may know what I'm talking about who says, and which means, uh, this may surprise some of you, that uh, the raiva says, or seems to say, that if you're a Cohen and you're tummy for whatever reason, for Tommy Mace, uh, then uh, you can become Tome, then you don't have to worry about that, ever again, you can go to funerals, and all the rest of it, I'll give you an example, take me, me, myself, and I, so, uh, uh, I'm Tome, my father died, I went to the funeral, you know, uh, no problem there, but I am tummy. Uh, if you go like the riot I could go to medical school. That's the way it always pops up. Can I go and go to medical school? Because you got to deal with the dead bodies. You always say, well, if you already Tommy, me, if, if, if. you uh, you already tell me, then it doesn't matter anymore. And uh, for some reason in the 18th century, this was heavily debated. It's uh, interesting to me. A lot of Kohanim, you could write a book. Maybe I should. Kohanim in the 18th century. It's a whole uh, partial, like with the, with the uh, uh, what do you call it, the the tunnel under the ghetto with the and all that, and Kohanim, uh, uh, just to give an example, they say when uh, Nelson Adler ran away from uh, Frankfurt and he passed through Prague with his young buddy, the Hizam Sofer, uh who was a teenager, and he stayed by the note of Yehuda for a while, they were hawking the whole time in the question about uh, the sheeps arrived and the Fushi Tumai knows, can you you know, and go to medical school, basically. And uh, believe me, as a rabbi, you always looking for hatter if you can find one. And look, I'm, I didn't go to medical school, and uh, <laughs> none of my kids. But I'm sure I've heard of some people that do, and I'm sure that's where they get the hater from. Now, uh, therefore, when I learned that I said, "Lena, let's see how you can work it out according to the rivet. And you know, the eights are hard; it always tells you to try to <laughs> work it out the way you want it to work. Well, well, well. A couple years ago, I saw this new shagah and he, it turns out in the chadashos. He has a whole discussion exactly on that subject. And he goes through it from top to bottom, in and out. He leaves no stone unturned. He walks you through the Gemara, back and forth, in and out. And unfortunately, my friends, by the time he finished, he said the, the rival is wrong. We don't pass in this way. It's not the way the Gemara works out. He read it wrong. He said the rival he read the rival wrong. And what he said makes sense. Uh and so I said, Oy vey, there you go. Uh but that's who the Shagasai is, you know, he is a, a like a, a supreme command this business. I would make one more observation, even though I've gone over time. He captured the imagination of a non from world. That really surprises me. Uh, if you look in encyclopedia, the old Jewish encyclopedia I met for years ago, to look at the article in Pilpul, was written by a former rabbi. He says, if you want to understand Pilpul, you have to read the Shagasari. And he gives you in English, in the old Jewish encyclopedia, in English. A couple of cases from the Shagasari, I can not believe it. You know, like, how do you know it? Uh, maybe I came from a Orthodox background or something like that. Uh, there are others for him like that also. I mean, other English books like that also, that will reference whenever they want to touch on Lambdas, touch on it, the uh, stuff from the shagasari. So he captured imagination in ways other people didn't. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. He's not the only great rabbi of the 18th century, but uh Occupy a special p- a place in the imagination, and as long as there are Shabbos and speeches, he will continue to do so. But what boy, have I gone way beyond my time, so I'll conclude with that. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbydovidcats.com.